This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm happy to welcome Dr. John C. Pulver back to the program. He is, of course, with uh, ClimbingUpward.com and Climbing Upward Music. John, good to catch up with you. I've missed you over the last couple of weeks. I, I appreciate your calming influence in my life. Well, that's interesting. I Hopefully, I can calm my own life down <laughs> enough to be able to be an influence on Brian Hyde. That would be pretty good. <laughs> take, take about 30 seconds here for the sake of people who are meeting you for the first time via this program, and tell us just a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background. Uh, my background is pretty extensive. I have uh, taught nearly 30 years in, in college classes, psychology and, and sociology. I also have a, a considerable amount of experience as a licensed therapist over about a 10-year period. Uh, I've written a book called uh, Growing Beyond Your Family of Origin Experience, which is available uh, on uh, Amazon as well as very soon on my site, climbing, climbingupward.com. I'm a musician. I've been a musician for ever since I've been a little boy. So I compose music, I perform, and I have really enjoyed that throughout my life. And I happen to have, in my marriages and so on, lived in just about every family structure possible, except for actually adopting a child. So I have a, quite a bit of experience between having clients at one point and having students that have shared things with me and my own personal experience. And now we have the website to be able to share uh, growth so that people can climb upward in their journey. Okay. And in That's full disclosure, I want to mention that John is a sponsor of this program. There is a link to his website in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Today, you came prepared to talk about becoming self-satisfied. And I have to admit, when I hear that term, I'm not sure exactly what to think because sometimes, well, I am kind of self-satisfied. Life is good. I'm happy with who I am or what I'm doing, and I'm happy with what I have at the moment here. Um, but what exactly do we mean? When we say self-satisfied, I get the impression that this could actually be something that could present a roadblock to us becoming more than we are today. I think that it actually presents for us a kind of an opposing sense of force on us. We all want to have a certain amount of satisfaction with our skills and who we are and that we can make uh, a difference in our lives, that we have a certain amount of independence so that we don't have to overly rely upon others. Um, it's actually been something that was talked about by a famous developmental theorist, Eric Erickson, who was post-Freud. And he proposed eight different stages that we go through in our lives and did them in kind of a dichotomous way or in an oppositional way, saying that we either can get through what that stage presents to us in a positive way or we can have a problem with that stage. And the second stage uh, that he proposes is something called autonomy versus shame and doubt. And this is between one and a half years old and three years old. And during this period of time, we want we strive for as much independence as possible. And uh, we ask ourselves, can I do things myself? Or I'm, am I very, very reliant still on the help of others? During this period of time, we use our will to say the word no a great deal. We learn how to go to the bathroom. We learn how to do a lot of things and, and eat ourselves and all kinds of things and get about. And so this is a period of time of great 
independence. And we so this is our first experience with trying to say, I need to do this myself. This is my thing. I don't want any help. So this is a natural thing that we go through. But then the question comes as we move through and we become more and more independent, can we get to a point where we are just so self-satisfied with where we're at that we're actually defensive towards the next steps that we can take in our lives to move ourselves to a more satisfying place? So that's kind of what we want to talk about a little bit is, you know, how do we move from a healthy self-sufficiency. I, I can do things sufficiently enough to, to, to manage myself throughout the world uh, versus getting to the point where we are absolutely defensive against anything that comes from the outside that might help and move us to a new direction in our lives. Okay, can I let me bounce an idea off you, and I just want to see if if this meets the definition, or at least might be an example of what self satisfaction uh, would look like. Um, years ago, I was living in Oklahoma, and I learned some really interesting sayings because they just had a way of expressing themselves. And a person was very diplomatically telling me about a friend of theirs that was uh, was conceited and, and like really full of himself. And the way it was put was, his attitude is, "You don't get much better than me." Would that be the attitude of a self-satisfied person? Or are we talking about, you know, is that, is that a narcissist or uh, something entirely different? There is the possibility that an individual who acts extremely conceited actually is masking themselves to the public so that the public does not see how absolutely vulnerable they really are, especially to anything like criticism or the like of that. In addition, we see that syndrome in bullies where they actually really are very, very insecure inside of themselves. So when we run across an individual, of course there's literally narcissistic individuals, but that's for another discussion. Okay. So it seems like yeah, so it seems like we we get we get really worried when someone is so defensive to outside influence that they won't seek that help or seek that influence. They won't they won't seek uh, advice. They won't seek counsel. They won't seek mentors. They won't seek heroes, you know, to to lift them up. They won't seek a supreme being such as God or or whatever their conception is of something higher than themselves. And they can't seem to accept that somebody has something else that they could use to elevate themselves. So that's what we're concerned about when we look at this. Okay. I appreciate that explanation. That actually, that really opened up some, some light on the subject. So let me offer this is the polar opposite of a self-satisfied person. The person who's almost neurotic. In other words, they're, they're so consumed with self-doubt or so unsure of themselves that basically they just wander around in, in a permanent state of indecision because they don't trust themselves in anything? Well, I think if you did not do your uh, stage from one and a half to three, you'd have shame and doubt, which is the opposite of that. So I suppose we could say that. But I think the, uh, the opposite really is an individual who uh, has a desire to listen to counsel, to find 
uh, people who can develop, help them develop new skills, new insights. They ask questions of people. They, they're open to some kind of criticism. They're able to uh, accept that there are many people that are more intelligent than they are, they're more talented than they are, more effective than they are, and and they are they don't get into this thing where they see somebody who is really able to give them something, and instead of, of allowing that to happen, they want to maybe put that person down or try to say, man, I'm just as good as as you are, and so why don't you just you know let me be? The the thing about being self satisfied. Let me just give you a couple of little ideas here. Uh, you know, when you're self satisfied, uh, you don't really uh, have a desire for self improvement. You're defending yourself in the name of, I am okay. You know, just the way I am, and nobody is going to tell me any different. So the problem with that is is that if, if you have things that you can grow in or that are actually holding you back from success, um, without this self-motivated desire to improve yourself, you'll be forced to have the winds of trial and the hellish forces of life eventually beat upon you until you come to your senses and realize that this self-satisfaction, this defensiveness is getting you nowhere forward. Now, I'm not talking about how you've met a goal and you're satisfied with having met that. I mean, self-satisfaction in that sense is a very healthy thing to, to actually have said, okay, I have this skill or I met this goal or I, I'm able to do this thing that I want to be able to do. Self-satisfaction is really more like saying, don't make me become anything else. Don't, don't tell me that there's another person I can be. I'm through evolving. Yes, I like that. I'm, I'm through evolving. Okay. We're up against the break here. Again, we're talking with Dr. John C. Pulver. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate this from a number of standpoints, John. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about mentorship. We're going to talk about interdependence. And, and I got to tell you, this is one that hits a nerve for me because I've been at that stage in my life where I can do this on my own. Everybody just leave me alone. I want to go be a hermit somewhere. That's, that's not a good way to do things. We're going we're gonna to talk about why that is. Again, John C. Pulver is my guest. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Dr. John C. Pulver is my guest. By the way, he's also one of my sponsors. That would be ClimbingUpward.com. Check out the link in my show notes today for June 23rd, 2023. All right, John, we're talking about uh, we're talking about basically becoming a better version of ourselves. Um, I understand where people can get to that. Well, you know, really, this is about all the improvement I have, or maybe it's some form of uh, this is me. And flaws and all, this is who I am. I'm just going to embrace it. I'm going to lean into it. And, and that's who I shall be forevermore. Um, I know that we all have our own little journey where we kind of sort things out. And there was definitely a turning point in my own life where I realized I'm supposed to be learning. or The, the, the things that are happening, the experiences that are being afforded me are being given to me, not just for the sake of, well, what would you think of that? But 
because they could help shape me and refine me in ways that uh, basically everything going just great <laughs> couldn't. There were things that had to be learned, things that had to be overcome. And uh, you mentioned a word off air that I want to bring into this discussion, and that is humility. How does humility play a role in a person reaching their, their real potential? Humility is a recognition that compared to other things, to other people, to your concept of a supreme being, compared to other ideas, compared to other skills, you are in a position where there's a gap between you and that individual or that idea or whatever it is you're comparing yourself to. And and so you in order for you to move forward, you have to accept in a sense that you're not sufficient the way you are compared to what you're going to be able to become as you move in your journey. The question is, is where are you going to get that help? And this is where we talk about mentorhood. Where are you going to get that help? A mentor is a concept where something is there for you to grab onto to help you move from point A to point B. And because that person or idea or thing knows about where you're going and can help you get there if you will listen and apply what they're going to say to you. Now, in many people's belief system, the ultimate mentor would be God or a higher power. But the question is, all of us have these times. And I and I mean this, I think even people like Elon Musk and 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 Gates and all these other people, they look like they're really independent and they just they just didn't have any. But no, Musk is is inspired by Nikolai Tesla. I mean, somebody has has got to be out there that that you can want to follow. So back to the humility thing. I think that we need to realize that we have certain amounts of skills, we have certain amount of experiences, but other people are there to help us realize our full potential. Else, why do we have parents? Why do we put someone in a position of teacher? Why do we have friends? We have all of these these people that can help us to emerge. And to say that we're already there is probably not very humble. You know, mentors were, that's a, that's a concept that I didn't really understand very well until I was introduced to, to what's called uh, leadership education. In a nutshell, I'm describing the kind of education that, uh, that great leaders throughout history have had, not just politicians, but people who have led out and established themselves as, as some kind of uh, world changer in some respect. It could be Florence Nightingale. It could be Harriet Tubman. It could be George Washington. But they had mentors who helped them walk that path that they had to walk. And uh, how does a person know when, when it's time to, to reach out and find a mentor? I mean, how do you go about something like that. It sounds like a pretty important process. Well, off the top of my head, I'm thinking that um, you're asking actually a, a, a more fundamental question, which is how do I know that I need to make a change that moves me from where I am to where I think I'll be more comfortable, more happy, more satisfied, etc. 
So the first thing that we and we talked about this when we talked about my essay, Ch- Choosing Your Future Self, where we talked about you pay attention to your emotions, you pay attention to your pain, you pay attention to your deficiency, you pay attention to your dissatisfaction, you, you pay attention to uh, what excites you that you're not yet participating in. What, what would life be like if something was different? And so you, you try to look for someone who is doing that or someone who can give you some sort of set of tools or some kind of inspiration to make you move from this point A to the point B. That's not all of it, but that's probably some of it. I like that you use the word inspiration because I, I believe, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like that would have to be part of the process. In other words, you, you really can't be browbeaten into embracing the idea that I'm going to improve. I'm ready to to make the improvements that need to be made. I'm ready to to sort out what isn't quite right and over needs to be overcome. Um, that's something you have to choose for yourself. It, I mean, it has to be freely chosen in order for it to be genuine, right? It does have to be freely chosen and it can be freely chosen. It can be somewhat coerced into us by a set of circumstances that we bring upon ourselves from our inaction. But one of the things that I said in the essay was that you have a feeling that uh, things are not quite right yet with you, or you have a little bit more that you need to do to achieve what it is that is going to give you a sense of peace, satisfaction, direction, et cetera. So there's, it's, it's these emotions, it's kind of a, maybe anxiety, these kinds of things that will bring, uh, uh, and also circumstances can, can hit us where, where all of a sudden uh, we become terminated at a job or, or something happens where we need to get more education in order to move up and make more money if that's our goal or in terms of, of uh, improving ourselves. Or somebody says to us, you know, uh, this relationship's not working very well. Or a kid says to us something that makes us feel like we're not a very good parent <laughs> to that child. Or a boss gives us annual feedback, something that gives us. So it can be these things that on the outside get us going. But the whole hypothesis of what we talked about earlier is that can we become so driven that we are not sitting still and have to be uh, defensive about who we are? Can we move on our own volition to a new place that we want to achieve? We've got about one minute left. Let's bring this home. Um, Just if we can summarize a little bit about what we've covered today in in terms of self-satisfaction, mentorship, interdependence, what are, what are a couple of the takeaways that you would like the listener to, to walk away from this discussion remembering? Well, one thing we haven't talked about too much was interdependence. One of the things that I had my college students write about very quickly here was, uh, was their experiences with being able to count on people. And I had a lot of students that said, I'm a survivor and I don't need this and I don't need that. And I, I'm just fine the way I am. And often I would k- kick a question back and I said, well, wouldn't it be nice if you could have counted on somebody? Wouldn't it be nice if you had somebody that you knew uh, accepted you and knew you were headed somewhere, gave you the support, gave you the love, gave you the attention? And I said, in interdependence 
beats the heck any day out of independence completely away from influences and people. And it beats the heck out of dependence, meaning you have no sense of your own personal autonomy. So uh, that, in addition to things we said, I think earlier, gives us a chance to think about, are we too self-sufficient, too self-satisfied? I love it. I love it. The website is called climbingupward.com. I encourage people go there. I've got a, a link in the show notes. John, always great to talk with you. Um, I look forward to, to us you. doing this again soon, I hope. Let's do it. Thanks. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I know there was a lot of coverage this last week about, uh, of course, the submarine or the the uh, whatever it's called, the submersible that went down to look at the Titanic wreck and, uh, well, didn't make it. And, you know, I, I'll admit... The, the first the first comic I saw that you know showed a, I think it was Stone Toss Comics which just there's some real dark humor here but here's the little the submersible you know floating around the Titanic and someone inside says can you imagine what it must have been like for them and then it's like you know power shuts off and it's oh boy we don't have to imagine anymore and I know there's a lot of dark humor that goes with this and I've seen some people say look if you're if you're finding humor in this you need to repent. And I just, uh, there's two quick notes of caution that I want to sound. First of all, dark humor is how people deal with uh, horrific events. And I know, well, five people died. Some people are making a big deal. Oh, well, they were rich, so it doesn't really matter. You know, as if a person's net worth somehow determines whether or not they deserve to be mourned or not. I mean, no matter how you look at it, it's like, wow, that was that was tragic on a number of levels. But... There's also the idea that uh, this was a huge distraction. And I say this from the standpoint of uh, word came out last night that the U.S. Navy, which, you know, they kind of have a job of uh, monitoring undersea things. They actually have listening posts that pay attention to everything that's moving under the water. And with, you know, nuclear submarines prowling around the world and, you know, uh, attack subs and, and subs carrying nuclear warheads, you can kind of see where that would be sort of a big deal. But the point is, they knew as of Sunday afternoon that this submersible had imploded. Or at least they had heard it. They caught it. You know, they recorded. Well, that, that didn't sound good. That sounded like, you know, something made an uncontrolled descent and got crushed. So my caution is, you know, first of all, don't laugh at things that are not appropriate. Sorry, people are going to do that. I'm not saying this is one of my proudest moments, but uh, I got caught up in the giggles at my dad's funeral. I could not stop laughing. It was humiliating. It was embarrassing. I'd rather have wet my pants in front of everybody than sit there and laugh uncontrollably at my dad's funeral. But there I was. I could not stop laughing. Okay, you know, whatever, whatever character flaw that reveals, it was a, it was a pretty, uh, pretty embarrassing situation. Tried to cover it up as best I could. I think most people just thought I was sobbing, but wow, that was embarrassing. But it's how we deal with with difficult, stressful, and sometimes ugly circumstances. 
I mean, if you have friends who are cops or other first responders, firemen, EMTs, you think you know dark humor. You think, oh, well, they would never engage in it. Please. Sometimes you have to just to keep your sanity. And you can do so without, you know, denigrating other people or, you know, somehow pretending like, well, they didn't matter or their lives really were worth nothing. I guess what I'm saying in so many words, lighten up, Francis. But, uh, but the more important lesson, when something like this is going on, well, there's a big news story. Everybody's talking about it, including me. It's always helpful to ask yourself, what exactly is going on here that I'm not supposed to see? In other words, is this the distraction? Is this the diversion? Is this the uh, beautiful, scantily clad assistant waving with a flourish as the magician, you know, completes his illusion? I mean, there's a reason that she's out there to be eye candy. Because most of the audience members are going to be like, oh, wow, look at her twirling and bouncing around there. Yeah, so the magician can set up, you know, what he needs to to pull off, you know, the illusion. Okay, think about the think about the news coverage in terms of if something is being done to distract me, what exactly are they trying to keep me from noticing? I think the obvious answer is, well, you know, there was a lot of stuff about Hunter Biden and the Biden family's, uh, you know, corruption that was in the news. But boy, we were all focused on what was going on around the Titanic's wreck, weren't we? Just kind of an interesting observation. I'll move on from here. By the way, I've got a couple great articles linked that I would really encourage you to take a look at for yourself. Um, in today's show notes, you'll find uh, this, this is one that just hits home for me. I want to see accountability. I mean, real accountability, like sitting in court, answering questions, being prosecuted, accountability, maybe ending up in jail. Maybe, you know, they, we go the route of Nuremberg and some people, you know, they, they pay for the crimes they committed against humanity the way that uh, other people who've committed crimes against humanity have paid for it. But it's not happening. And Bill Rice has this marvelous article from the Brownstone Institute. And he just says, you know, the people that are in power, they are still in power and they're still dodging responsibility. We're seeing a very good example of this, of course, with Dr. Peter Hotez, one of the best known vaccine advocates and defenders of all the COVID mitigation measures. But he's scared to death because people are asking him the kind of questions that he knows if he can't, if he answers them honestly, he's damned. If he continues to hide from answering those questions, he's still damned because he's, you know, clearly on the run. Bill Rice says, in South Alabama, we have an expression, if you're scared, say you're scared. That's his advice to Dr. Peter Hotez. You're obviously scared to death, just come out and admit it. He says what scares Dr. Hotez is an invitation for him to debate presidential candidate and contrarian COVID expert Robert Kennedy Jr. on Joe Rogan's ultra-popular podcast show. Well, apparently Hotez kept bad-mouthing disinformation super-spreader Kennedy, and Rogan finally had enough. So he challenged him, said, look, I'll donate $100,000 to your favorite charity if you just come on the show and in a debate with no time limits... Debate Kennedy on vaccine effectiveness, safety, and all the other allegedly settled COVID science. Now, Bill Rice says, as I write this, the debate invitation has gone viral on Twitter with plenty of other wealthy people like Steve Kirsch pledging even more money to make the debate happen. At last check, 
Dr. Hotez could net $1.5 million for his favorite charity by simply talking to Kennedy and Rogan for two or so hours. Talk about easy money. Well, needless to say, Kennedy is game for a congenial debate. Needless to say, he doesn't need to be bribed to participate. He'll do it for free. He'll pay his own expenses to show up in the studio. Truth be told, huh, there's that word truth, nobody's surprised that Dr. Hotez is running from a genuine debate on COVID topics. And that's because no expert in America has participated in a genuine debate on COVID topics in 40 months. Apparently, one new feature of our new normal scientific method, method rather, is that the new the real debates, actual debates, are no longer necessary. In fact, why they're strongly discouraged, which is why Facebook, Google, YouTube, the CDC, Joe Biden's White House, and the corporate press have been pushing for censorship on steroids for so long. And for those who haven't picked up on this yet, censorship also blocks real debates. For almost four years, Hotez and nearly every expert and authority of his ilk have been saying that people like Kennedy, who are spreading disinformation and misinformation, are potentially killing and harming massive numbers of people with their false COVID claims. Well, according to the experts, the claims made by Kennedy, Kirsch, Bill Rice Jr., and millions of other intelligent science deniers are ridiculous, preposterous, obviously false, easily discredited. So why the fear? Such claims are interesting as they suggest that any debate with a COVID skeptic would be a layup or a gimme to win. Even a caveman could humiliate RFK Jr. in a debate about real science. So if victory would be so easy and if one could make a couple million for his favorite charity, why not do this? Now, Bill Rice says, speaking for myself, I'm tired of accepting the inferred predicate that I'm obtuse when I know I'm not. We all know the real answer. The Dr. Hotezes of the world are scared to death of a real debate. If this isn't a giant tell about these frauds and charlatans, nothing is. And also, every one of them are pro-censorship. Isn't that interesting? You know, I, I saw that uh, Glenn Greenwald, Glenn Greenwald <clears throat> had, had requested an interview with uh, Dr. Hotez. Now, Glenn is no slouch. Glenn is followed by millions of people around the world I think he is a serious journalist. But when he reached out to Dr. Hotez's, you know, handlers or his administrative staff, once they knew it was somebody that wouldn't be just lavishing praise on him, oh, doctor, tell us about how awesome you are and how wrong your critics are. But, but a real reporter who would ask real questions. And Glenn's not some attack dog, you know, he's not like, what was the guy's name, uh, Morton Downey Jr. <laughs> would just go off. No, he's a serious journalist. But of course, Dr. Hotez, I'm sorry, we've checked his schedule. He will be unable to accommodate your request. Yeah, I can only imagine why. So, the idea, I guess, here is that you can run, but you can't hide. Well, apparently, the, for the authorities around here can run, and they can hide. That's what they've been doing for 40 months, and Bill Rice says, as far as I can tell, they're all still in power. So that strategy apparently is working for them. However... The pressure is building. As it builds, pay attention because you're going to see much stronger calls for censorship, you know, to prevent, you know, the official narrative from unraveling completely in public view. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, I'd like to thank my sponsors, including Monticello College, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, TMCP Nation, the Modern Conservative Podcast. It's my friend John Harvey. And of course, as you heard earlier, Dr. John Pulver from Climbing Upward. So I know that uh, the word constitution kind of has an interesting reaction on a, on a lot of people. And look, I will admit, even with my love of, you know, of the constitution and my love of good government, my love of liberty, there's times where I feel like, oh, man, so we're bringing that up again. You know, and, and I, I get it. I've seen people's eyes glaze over at the mention of the Constitution. Oh, boy, here we go. Another John Bircher going off on the Constitution as if it still has relevance in our time. And I guess my point is that's kind of an attitude that's that's crept in. People seem to think, well, it really has less relevance than it did, you know, in the time that it was written. But I don't think they truly understand why the Constitution was as important as it was and is and should be. I guess, let me put this a different way. The deficiency is not with the document itself or the idea that uh, sparked the document. The deficiency is in a people who are too obtuse to recognize the value of something that actually kept government within a positive role of protecting their lives, protecting their property, protecting their, their freedom and their rights, as opposed to one that just controls and taxes them, you know, at every possible turn. Got a great article here from Michael Bolden from the 10th Amendment Center. And if you have not subscribed to their emails or if you haven't uh, donated to them or for that matter, just availed yourself of their resources, you're missing out. These are some really brilliant people and they're very grounded in in reality. As in, what does the Constitution actually say? What did the founders who wrote that Constitution actually say? What were the sources from which they drew inspiration? You don't see a lot of that today. In fact, what you do see is a lot of efforts to tear that down. They had slaves back in that time. How could anything that they say be relevant? Anybody who talks like that, well, (laughs) you know that they're, they're really not familiar with any of the material. They've never read the personal letters or writings or essays or the correspondence, you know, between these men, let alone the documents themselves. Here's what Michael Bolden says about our true constitutional crisis. He says, year in and year out, it seems like we're hammered with one constitutional crisis after another. And while most are serious issues, nearly all of them are really just symptoms of a much deeper constitutional crisis that we've been going through for a long time. And it's a crisis that obliterates foundational principles of the American Revolution. Now, see, this might matter since we're going to be celebrating the 4th of July in just a little over a week. But he says, in order to fully grasp this situation, it's essential to understand what we mean by the revolution. Writing to Thomas Jefferson, John Adams described it this way. What do we mean by the revolution, the war? That was no part of the revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. The revolution was in the minds of the people, and this was effected from 1760 to 1775 in the course of 15 years before a drop of blood was drawn at Lexington. End quote. Wow. It was what was going on in their hearts. That's where the revolution took place. 
Now, in other letters, Adams often pointed to James Otis Jr.'s thunderous 1761 speech against the writs of assistance as the beginning of the controversy between the colonies and Great Britain. Here, Otis asserted the view that an act against the Constitution is void. Now, in the British system, the king in Parliament held sovereignty or final authority. As Mike Meharry notes, every act of Parliament was, in essence, part of the Constitution. It was an absurdity to argue an act of, con- of Parliament rather was unconstitutional since it was sovereign. Anything Parliament did was, by definition, constitutional. In fact, parliamentary acts became part of the constitutional structure. So Michael Bolden says, by taking the view that the meaning of even the unwritten British Constitution was above the views and laws of Parliament, Otis was espousing a radical view, one that would, be, would become rather a big part of the revolution in the years to follow. In 1765, on his 29th birthday, and just 11 days after taking his oath of office, Patrick Henry introduced a series of resolutions against the Stamp Act. Like Otis, he took the position that Parliament's power had limits that it was not allowed to cross. He also answered the question of how a people should treat an act of government that's beyond the Constitution and thus void. Patrick Henry said, The people are not bound to yield obedience to any law or ordinance whatsoever. That a, that attempt to usurp local authority over such internal policy and taxation. You understand? Any law or ordinance that attempts to usurp local authority over internal policy and taxation. So, Patrick Henry's speech in support of the resolutions was, of course, met with intense opposition. I believe treason was the word they cried, but he didn't back down. Michael Bolden says there were, these are two of many examples of how the American revolutionaries began to think of a constitution as something that exists above the government. They increasingly rejected the idea that government held sovereignty and formed the constitution, and instead conceived of the constitution as something from which, something from the people, rather, to put limits on government. Thomas Paine described it this way, A constitution is not an act of government, but of a people constituting a government. Do you get the distinction there? It's the people calling a government into existence, not the other way around. Government is the servant. It's the created, not the creator. George Mason summed it up. In all our associations, in all our agreements, let us never lose sight of this fundamental maxim, that all power was originally lodged in and consequently is derived from the people. We should wear it as a breastplate and buckle it on as our armor, end quote. So this radical change in the views of the people, the American Revolution, created a constitutional crisis with the British who expressly claimed power over the colonies in all cases whatsoever. Now in practice, Mike Meharry writes, the 18th century British system rested on a living, breathing constitution. The government itself defined and enforced whatever limits it might have. So essentially it was unlimited in power and authority. Sounds kind of familiar, right? Meharry says, for all practical purposes, the federal government today operates without any limits at all. Everything the federal government does and approves is considered constitutional. So in practice, the people themselves treat federal power in much the same way the British wanted the colonies to treat British power. That is, the government pretty much does whatever it wants until the government determines that the government should stop. 
And the same situation applies whether the people vote the bums out or sue in federal court or march on Washington, D.C. In all these situations, it's about convincing the government to stop doing what the government shouldn't have been doing in the first place. Now, that's not how you describe a land of the free. That's a population on its knees begging for scraps. And when it comes to the Constitution itself, things might be even worse. The vast majority of the people believe the Constitution means what the Supreme Court tells us it means, until it changes its mind. In other words, the federal government gets to determine the extent of its own power. In practice, that's giving government the final authority, which is really not much different than the British view of sovereignty at the time of the Revolution. Founders such as Thomas Jefferson and Richard Henry Lee said this kind of elective despotism was not what they fought for. And this represents our true constitutional crisis today. Michael Bolden says the odds may seem stacked against us, but things can be turned around. After all, he points out, we have the wisdom, the advice, the experience, and the strategy from the founders and old revolutionaries. As John Dickinson told us, it is ultimately up to the people to protect and defend their own constitution, whether the government likes it or not. This is how he said it. It is their duty to watch and their right to care that the Constitution be preserved. Or, in the Roman phrase on perilous occasions, to provide that the Republic receive no damage. Michael Bolden says, it won't be easy or quick, but as Samuel Adams put it, all might be free if they valued freedom and defended it as they ought. Now you might think, well, this seems like a curiously political turn that you've taken here. But you notice I'm not calling for it. Neither is Michael Bolden. None of us are calling for Well, you know, what you need to do then is uh, vote harder and get better government in place to make sure that uh, government does what it's supposed to do. No, I think the solution that he's talking about here is one that actually makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Because it's a solution that involves personal commitment. You, in your heart, have to understand and know what the principles and practices of freedom are. And not just know them but actually love them and embrace them and understand them to the point that you are willing to adhere to them, regardless of what is popular. You have to be willing to stick up like a nail, knowing that there's a possibility somebody's going to want to hammer on you. How much do you love freedom? Do you love it enough to suffer for it? I can't answer that question for you, but I know for a lot of people the answer is, well, no, not really. This is The Brian Hyde Show.